L'audit de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détail sur Audi.fr. Welcome to this episode of Tez Podagogy. Today, my guest is David C. Geary, Curator's Distinguished Professor and Thomas Jefferson Fellow in the Department of Psychological Sciences at the University of Missouri. He is a world expert on maths teaching, but for this podcast, we are focusing in on his work around primary and secondary knowledge, how it impacts teaching, and also its influence on cognitive load theory. David, hello. Uh, hello. Thank you for having me. So this is such a hot topic at the moment in the, in the UK education scene, partly because of cognitive load theory, but also there's, just, there's an interest in its own right about in your work around primary and secondary knowledge. Um, so I guess the best place to start for anyone who doesn't understand the work at the moment or who wants a refresh is to, is to def- talk about the two definitions of biologically primary abilities and biologically secondary abilities. Should we start with the, the primary abilities? Sure. Um, so by primary, I mean um, human universal abilities. Uh, and so these were things that would go typically under the rubric of what's called folk psychology, folk biology, and folk physics. So folk psychology, for example, would include language, uh, theory of mind, your ability to kind of know what other people are thinking, reading facial expressions, body language, um, so forth. Uh, folk biology includes kind of knowledge about plants and animals, which isn't that important for for people in uh, you know developed nations, but if you're living in the real world, um, you, you need an extensive knowledge base uh, to survive. And folk physics involves things like um, being able to navigate to get from one place to the other, uh, knowing how to use tools and so forth. So these are things we see throughout the world. Um, these are things. Uh, competencies we see emerging uh, in young children. Uh, there's evidence for kind of an implicit understanding of a number of these things, even in infancy, and it kind of gets increasingly sophisticated uh, during the course of um, development. So these are the, the 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 basic taxonomy of primary skills. You don't mean that uh, these things are you don't know them when you're born, you mean they're sort of the brain is primed for, to, to learn these things. Is, is that right? Right, right. Yeah, the uh, brain has uh, a certain organization to it in certain areas that makes sure that infants, young children, find some things more interesting than others, human faces, for example. Mm. And then by attending to human faces, um, that provides the experience that kind of teaches them to recognize one person versus another or discriminate a happy face from a sad face, from an angry face, so forth. So you have these built-in early kind of skeletal structures that kind of guide kids' experience to make sure they get the feedback necessary to fill out these primary skills and adapt them to whatever their local conditions are. And do those, are we talking, do these develop, I mean, we're talking early childhood here, that this happens 0 to 5, for example, or can, for whatever reason, these experiences be sort of, I, I guess, mapped onto those, the, that organizational structure as, as, as children into become adolescents and, and perhaps on? Well, probably uh, it, it depends on the skill. So uh, if we look at some very basic uh, language competencies, such as the discrimination of phonemes like ba, ka, da, from one, one another. We know that uh, infants uh, preferentially kind of attend to those. If, if you do s- simple kind of brain imaging types of things, they're, they're attending to those. And they uh, become very good at discriminating the language sounds, uh, the phonemes of their language. They're, they're built with the ability to discriminate all phonemes across all languages, um, but then that gets narrowed down to the ones they hear 
essentially in the first year of life. Um, other aspects of language, uh, comprehension and so forth, these things unfold more, more gradually, probably over childhood and maybe even improving into early adolescence. And is is something like so you would class sort of the whole uh, the whole sort of remit of language as a as a biologically primary skill, or does it become? I guess we haven't defined secondary first. So perhaps you want to define secondary uh, pro- secondary abilities first, and then we can talk about maybe where the distinctions lie. Sure. Yeah. So um, by secondary, um, what I mean is uh, uh, evolutionarily novel knowledge. So these are uh, abilities, competencies, whatever you want to call it, that have uh, emerged uh, fairly recently um, in in human historical time. So maybe over the first uh, last few thousand years um, or so. And it it would include your, your typical academic skills studied in school, reading, writing, uh, arithmetic. Um, You don't need any of these competencies to survive and do well in traditional societies, but you certainly do need them uh, today in uh, developed societies. So they are uh, a skill set that isn't a natural fit with how we're, we're wired, if you want to put it in simplistic terms. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think that's uh, simplistic uh, at all. I, I think that that's exactly right. That kids are biased to attend to, be interested in, and easily learn about certain types of things. And kids all over the world do the same thing. Um, but when you get to things like uh, reading, for instance, it only emerges in cultures where there are institutions set up uh, to teach kids how to read. It doesn't emerge in the same way that language emerges, for example. And so the example we were given before about language then, so like comprehension at at a sort of oracy level, so a spoken language comprehension can develop as a primary skill ability and then read comprehension is 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 a secondary ability in that instance or...? Right. So, um... Uh, so, yeah, basic uh, language comprehension, making inferences about the nuances of what somebody says and so forth, as long as it's an uttered um, uh, sp- you know, sentence, not a, a written one, that would be all part of um, the primary language base. Uh, reading skills and writing skills are built on top of this uh, primary language system, as well as some, some other systems. So there will be some overlap between the two, and we know that they engage many of the same um, brain regions. The uh, trick is to teach kids so that they can decode words, they recognize written words, they can retrieve the meaning pretty quickly, and so forth. So teaching basic reading skills that allows them to take the written word and understand it in a way similar uh, to how they would understand a spoken word. Oh, I see. And you, uh, in, the, in, in your papers, you discuss how this primary knowledge is sort of encountered or, or, or acquired, and it's this uh, process of play and social interaction and exploration, and it's sort of a, it's a natural acquisition of, of, of knowledge, if you like, is how you describe it, essentially. Right. So I think that, that most uh, primary skills are what uh, a lot of people call plastic or mm. kind of open systems, modifiable, because people live in all different types of ecologies, all different types of um, social uh, groups. And so you have to be able to take kind of this shared core of human skills and, you know, adapt it to whatever the local conditions are. Mm. And so, you know, you don't know what kind of uh, plants or animals that you're going to uh, encounter and need uh, to understand in order to survive. Um, But you have to make sure you learn about them. 
So there's a built-in inherent structure that gets you started. You know, you focus on those, you begin to make inferences that things that have self-initiated movement um, are alive uh, and, and so forth. But then through, you know, exploring uh, the ecology, exploring the environment, playing with animals or playing hunting them or whatever they're doing, uh, they begin to learn more and more about the, the specifics of the plants and animals um, in their particular region. Mm. And is that the same for language that you're exploring? This early stage of development is an exploration of, of the peculiarities of your own language system, what well, the language system that you live within. Right, right. So it, it's taking a, a basic language structure that you could um, put a, a kid in any uh, natural language community and uh, by... Uh, you know, talking to the kid and, and him or her uh, socially engaging with other people, that language will become uh, the language that they're they're exposed to. But the the underlying structure is um, is the same for all people. And you talk about it being uh, children naturally motivated to seek out that that primary knowledge. And and is there have we any idea of how what environment it is best to you know best for that exploration i mean there's you know school start ages are different around the world and you know there's an argument for against preschool or whether the family home is the best do we know do, do children seek out the information whatever environment they are in or does it need some sort of structured introduction to this knowledge in sort of a preschool environment elementary school yeah so the uh, prime the primary knowledge doesn't doesn't really need it so if, if we look at um uh, social skills, you know, so reading, being able to make inferences about whether people are thinking and feeling, which is called theory of mind, uh, that begins to develop pretty early <clears throat> in the preschool years and gets sophisticated over time. And they don't need to explicitly try to understand um, that or, or, or seek out ways to um, develop theory of mind their natural bias to want to play with other kids and socially interact in increasingly complex ways will naturally result in that because the the brain is pre-organized to make sure that um, that will happen if the kids get the, you know, kind of evolutionarily expected experiences. In this case, it would just be basically playing with friends. And so, I mean, that those early stages of, I, I guess, I'm, I'm, you know, our early years here, where you become into a more structured environment, if you like, a school environment can be from the age of two to five. In that period, do we need to get out of the way so they can just they can develop this primary knowledge, or is it at this point more of a balance, or what? What should we be doing at that age? I guess is the question. Yeah, 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 good question. Well, I think, I, I don't think anybody knows for sure, you know, what's the sufficient amount to make sure it develops. Mm. Uh, it's probably not huge. Uh, you know, kids can play during recess, mm. unstructured. They're going to play after school with their friends, presumably. They'll have weekends to play. Um, I mean, that that's probably uh, sufficient. Mm. And is there any danger, I mean we can obviously help the, the the development of those primary skills through like providing play opportunities and perhaps leaving kids to explore rather than to tell at that age but can we actually be detrimental to that process or or whatever we do as an adult are we unlikely to have a negative impact on on that child say for example I'm not saying we're going to put a kid in a in a cupboard and not let them interact but just to make you know, as a as a preschool teacher, for example, is there things we shouldn't be doing at that age? Well, yeah. So there there's some interesting studies in uh, in folk biology, kind of looking at your understanding of um, the relations between different species. Mm. And if you take uh, you know a ten year old in living in a traditional context, they have really well developed folk biological knowledge mm. because they've had a huge amount of experience interacting with the natural world. You take a 10-year-old from a urban 
area in a developed nation, you know, they, they still have the basic structure of folk biology, but it's not very rich. They, they don't have the level of the, the depth of detail um, because they're not having many experiences with, with the natural world. Now, that, that's not necessarily an issue because they're not going to have to go out and uh, find food on their own. But it does, it does show that if uh, kids don't get you know, enough experiences uh, in the, these areas, they're, they're not going to become as sophisticated as they otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Does that, might, may that impact how that child will then, uh, for example, uh, develop spatial abilities or be able to have a foundational access to sort of some of the more secondary scientific concepts? <clears throat> yeah, the uh, question on, on spatial abilities is, is a great one. Um, so that, that would be part of folk physics. So kind of there, there's different types of spatial abilities, but but basically uh, knowing where you are, uh, where you need to be, and how how to get back, sorts of um, things. And um, there, these skills develop during uh, childhood and probably into adolescence. And there is some evidence that restricted exploration of the uh, large scale environment does or can uh, affect these skills. Hmm. And that, I guess, takes us on to, to the secondary abilities and how best we a- acquire those. And, and you speak about um, building on the primary systems. And I used, uh, in our former com- in our com- communications between this interview, I used a sort of very, probably inaccurate analogy of, of floating a boat on the, the boat. The secondary knowledge is almost a boat floating on, on, the, on the primary systems. I mean, do you want to take us through how you would best describe how the relationship between those secondary abilities and the primary abilities and, and, and the primary ability model, I guess? Right. So, um, yeah, it probably differs depending on, on domains. But let me say uh, the boat on the canal is um, a, good, a good analogy or metaphor uh, to some extent, but the boat kind of is going to float on its own, but you have to really build uh, secondary abilities. So you might have to build a bridge over the canal. You may have to build side canals or whatever. It takes some effort, uh, and and that's where the working memory, cognitive load, attentional control, and stuff really become uh, important. So as as a very basic example, uh, you know, I was talking about phonemes and language sounds. And one of the important things that kids need to learn early on is um, called phonemic awareness. So they need to be aware that the letter B has a B sound associated with it, and a D has a D sound, and so forth. Um, and they need to then, uh, that then allows them to sound out or decode words that they haven't seen before, words they haven't yet uh, memorized. So the, um, you know, the phonemes are built in, part of the primary language system, um, but kids wouldn't normally explicitly focus on, though, on, you know, the, the different sounds. They, they don't need to, to, to use language. Um, but associating those sounds with random visual images which is essentially what letters are, is primary. That's not something a kid is going to naturally do without some guidance, some type of instruction on, you know, this is important, and this is how this sound goes with this letter, or these this blend of sounds goes with this word, so forth. So that's um, kind of an early bridge between language and reading. Now, some kids, especially girls, uh, pick this up very quickly. Uh, girls have an advantage over boys in um, reading from from the beginning and in language. And so they, a, a lot of them pick it up without a lot of direct instruction. But a lot of other kids really need, it needs to be explicitly shown to them and they need to practice it um, a bit. And especially for boys. 
Um, but with enough practice, they'll they'll figure it out and become fluent in it. Is it quite? Um, it must be quite. Uh, I mean, I don't remember. I, you know, being there, but it sounds to me like learning has been quite easy up until the point we are encountering these secondary prime uh, secondary abilities, like primary abilities. It seems as long as we're in the right environment, everything's quite nice, and suddenly we're being asked to put some effort in to, to, to acquire these secondary abilities. Right, right. So with uh, the pri- the primary learning, kids can kind of hum along, do what they're going to do, um, play, explore things, figure out how things work, etc. all child kind of generated activities, and they don't have to put much effort into it. Because, as I said, the the brain is pre-prepared to take those experiences and kind of flesh out these primary skills. So it it's yeah, it, there's not much um, in terms of really needing a lot of effort uh, there. But then once you get to the non-evolved skills, uh, reading, writing, and so forth, the the brain isn't isn't structured uh, to easily learn those. So the instructional environment really has to provide that organization uh, to the child's experiences. Uh, The brain will already, for primary things, the brain automatically takes the experiences the child is generating and kind of builds on from those experiences. Um, But it's not ready to take experiences with, you know, letters and words and so forth because it, it has such a shallow evolutionary history with um, humans that, that it's novel. So does the teaching have to have a relationship with the primary models in the brain then, or or is it that the teacher is providing the structure that the brain is not providing? How, how does that interaction work? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it is that the teacher is providing the structure that the brain uh, is not uh, providing. So I, I think one of the the um, primary or or important uh, points of the distinction between primary and secondary is that the things that are sufficient for learning in primary domains, uh, you know, language, spatial navigation, so forth, are not going to be sufficient for learning in secondary domains. And there have been educational theories that have not made that distinction and have given us things like whole language, whole math, et cetera, which was really... Montessori to a degree as well, Montessori-style education. Yeah, yeah, that's self-discovery. But that's preschoolers, and it's probably... um, You know, I don't think it's as big of a deal for preschoolers, except ones that have... Some some issues at home. They're not getting enough kind of um, exposure to letters and numbers and, and so forth. Um, once you get to real academic learning, um, the child discovery sorts of things just just it just isn't going to work. And do you know what sort of age? I mean, obviously, as I said before, like the Scandinavians will start children on that sort of formal academic learning later than we will in the UK. Is is there any consensus in the literature around when we shift from this primary uh, child exploration type of knowledge acquisition to this secondary academic, when when we're ready for it, if you if you like? Right. Yeah. So the um, I think the the primary acquisition is always going on. Okay. I mean, you're always learning more about people, mm-hmm. relationships. For example, I mean, even in, into adulthood, things, you know, you get more sophisticated, more knowledgeable, hopefully wiser. Hopefully, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, you know, that that continues. Um, since it's, you know, since the secondary are evolutionarily novel, um, I don't think we can really think of them in terms of a developmental readiness. Okay. Because there's, you know, there, there's no, I mean, there are what's called life history stages in, in, in biological development, but this is kind of outside of that process. Mm-hmm. We do know from uh, studies conducted here in the U.S. and I'm sure elsewhere that 
<clears throat> there are certain things that kids really need to know to be ready for formal academic learning whenever that happens. So um, recognizing letters, recognizing numerals, understanding, uh, maybe having a, a bit of uh, uh, phonemic awareness, uh, understanding numbers conceptually, that four represents a cluster of four things, whatever those things are. And uh, kids who are uh, <clears throat> delayed in that for whatever reason really start out at a disadvantage whenever they start school. And um, it's very difficult for them to catch up. Hmm. So what we're saying is the the primary abilities need to be at, at least a good level of development before we can really go into the the, the explicit teaching of the secondary. Well, I think that um, so for the secondary stuff, uh, you know, uh, recognizing the alphabet A B C D, recognizing numerals one two three and so forth. I think that can start uh, really early. Um, uh, for many kids, you know, their their parents uh, expose them to it, and so they're they're not fully developed on a lot, of, a lot of primary skills, but they can begin to acquire uh, very rudimentary secondary skills. So sort of like a, a partnership between the two as as you mature into adulthood, then and into adulthood, as you suggest that. It's, it's not a it's not a sort of a hierarchical system. It's a it's a very much side by side development uh, process. Right, right, right. And one of them occurs easily, more or less automatically, and the other one just takes a lot of a lot of schooling, a lot of well organized schooling. And you you speak as well about how sometimes these the, the primary model can get in the way of the secondary knowledge, and you have to sort of. Um, is, is would it be fair to say overcome it to 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 learn the knowledge? Right. Yeah. So so there's been some pretty good um, studies on that in folk biology and folk physics. So people have um, you know kind of folk ideas, meaning just kind of general intuitive ideas about things like motion, things like biological growth or evolution, so forth, that are you know, provide good enough explanations for day-to-day -day sorts of things, but are scientifically incorrect. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the the interesting thing is, is you can teach people the science, and they get it. And even if they're say an undergraduate in biology, their intuitive folk ideas about growth and evolution kind of remain intact. It's like they have two systems of knowledge. And if they're not uh, careful, they could easily slip into the uh, the uh, the primary biases. The intuitive stuff is, uh, you know, works pretty well, particularly in traditional contexts. You don't really need to understand science, things scientifically. You just need to be able to hunt this animal or get from one place to another or whatever. Uh, but if you're in a developed nation and you're expected to understand certain scientific concepts, then these intuitive biases uh, can can get in the way. How does that impact sort of motivation? If if I mean, oh, have we have we got a bias to? Are, are we biased to our primary intuitive sense? And if so, do we unconsciously or unconsciously try and avoid uh, contradictions to that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, we are definitely biased to our uh, primary uh, intuitive sense of things because um, understanding things from a, from a secondary or scientific perspective takes a lot of effort, you know, unless you're super familiar with um, with the information. So um, studies of uh, people's reactions to genetically modified organisms, GMO, you know, a lot of people don't like the, those types of foods, but uh, you know, of course, they they've been around for forever. I mean, anything that is evolved is a genetically modified organism. Yeah. Um, the domestication of plants is, you know, 
the, the same thing. It just was, wasn't done as efficiently as it's done now. But people have this intuitive sense that you've modified it. You've somehow spoiled it. Mm-hmm. You've made it unhealthy by doing this direct manipulation. And, and scientifically, that, that's not true at all. But the intuitive kind of, oh, that's disgusting sort of feelings that a lot of people get from it um, kind of uh, make them uh, skew those, those types of foods. Does that go back to survival in the sense that we like things we recognize as, as pure or, or familiar and things that are contrary to that you know, spikes our suspicion or is it something else? Well, right. So um, in, in a natural context, people will have knowledge of, of hundreds of species and plants and so forth. Some of them you, you can eat, some of them you can use as medicines that, that actually work sometimes. Um, and some of them are poisonous. And so you, you kind of have to learn the differences between them. And people are sensitive to uh, foods that might be harmful to them. And how much of this uh, core work that you and others have done, but you know, it's it's largely you know, yourself that is cited most around this work. I mean, it's your it's your theory. I think it would be fair to say. How much of that is directly translatable to instruction in schools? How much, you know, how much of uh, you know, if a teacher is listening to this and say, "Oh, I'm going to teach in a certain way because of what I've just heard," would that be right, or do we have to be more cautious about that? Or you know, you've done some work in instruction is where where does the translation happen yeah so i i i think uh the translation happens uh in part through as we were talking earlier uh cognitive load theory so so part of my other um writings on primary and secondary sorts of things is that i argue that in order to um construct secondary knowledge it involves engagement, explicit attention-driven engagement of um, kind of working memory uh, and inhibition of any kind of folk biases. So it, it, it's really interesting. If kids are just kind of tooling around, playing with one another, doing stuff, you know, they're happy and all that, uh, a part of the brain called the default mode is uh, probably very active. And that kind of gives them a sense that it's kind of monitoring how things are going. It kind of puts their sense of self in a social context and so forth, uh, which is great. And, and so for mind-wandering, just daydreaming, that's the default mode network. But if you need to learn, um, say, algebra, um, you need to really focus on the information. You need to focus on whatever the teacher's doing or whatever's in the book. Um, so forth, because it's very abstract, not easy to learn information. And that attentional focus actually kicks in um, a different brain region um, called the uh, dorsal attentional network, and that actually inhibits the default mode network and vice versa. So if you're engaging in the mind-wandering kind of stuff that is fun, thinking about playing with your friends afterwards and so forth, you've got one brain region active. But in order to focus, attend to, and learn this um, secondary knowledge, you actually have to have that region suppressed and have another region active, probably actually several other regions active. So there, there is uh, that kind of you know, literal... Uh, seesaw type of thing. If one's up, the other's down, um, and and vice versa. For primary stuff, the one needs to be up. For a lot of the secondary learning, the the primary side needs to be down, and this other system or several other systems need to be engaged. So once you switch on that attentional focus, and I guess that can be done through controlling the environment the learning environment by either you know i guess there's several ways to grab attention as a as a teacher you can demand it or you can um 
do something that attracts attention. Um, so that though, I mean, do you advocate any explicit way of turning that of of, of turning that seesaw to the attentional focus? Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's that that's where the uh, art uh, of teaching comes in. I mean, you really have to get the kids engaged um, in the material in in some way. Uh, you know, it ha- having them do homework and practice is another way because the only way they're going to get it done is to actually focus uh, focus on that uh, material. And there are kids who have uh, difficulties, kind of um, maintaining attentional control, and or they have poor uh, working memory skills. They really can't deal with a lot of information at a time. And uh, it, there are interventions in, in development that kind of are looking to um, put in scaffolds to help kids with um, those types of deficits. They're, they're, they're just only been started to be done in the last few years for math is, is what I know about. But I, I think there is, um, uh, you know, things that te- teachers can do to grab attention for most kids. Uh, and then there are some kids where they're going to need additional um, scaffolding in their instruction, maybe giving smaller bits of information, having them repeat it, and other strategies. And is the teacher competing, I mean, in terms of that switch to attentional focus, if, if a child is sat there and looking out the window or um, is, is thinking about something that's happening at home or is looking forward to a TV program on later that night, is that all competing with the teacher for attentional focus or does that all happen in the default mode? Uh, all, all that other stuff that you mentioned happens in the default mode uh, and they're not going to learn much algebra if they're in the default mode. Yeah. And, and and that's why I think a lot of the kid-directed stuff um, doesn't always work very well. I mean, especially if you just cut kids loose on their own, because they're going to kick into a default mode and go into socializing and talking and things that are more interesting to them. I was going to say, is that like is it's more pleasurable to be in the default mode, presumably? It, it it is absolutely more pleasurable to be in the default mode um rather than the attentional focus and um and uh, executive function working memory mode because that takes effort to sit there and focus on something you have to actively kind of inhibit the the default mode and think about what's um you know what what you're trying uh to learn it's not something that people easily do um and it's not something they like to do that's why people um jump to conclusions based on their intuitive sense of things rather than stopping and thinking it through logically because you know if your intuitive sense of something seems good enough you're going to go with it why go through all this effort of thinking it through and how 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 easy is it to stay in that intentional intentional zone, if you want to call it that, in terms of a typical school day over here, I guess, in, in a secondary setting would be like a series of one-hour lessons over an eight-hour period, and you might get a half-hour break in the morning, and if you're lucky, an hour break in, in the afternoon, but largely you have a run of, 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 of lessons. Is it is it reasonable to expect someone to stay in that zone for an hour? Is it reasonable to expect them to stay in it constantly for two hours? Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to depend on on the age of the kid and the kid. I mean, the the smaller kids are going to have more trouble staying focused than the uh, than the older uh, kids. But he, even in a you know one hour lesson, I mean, you probably don't have to maintain you know intense focus for a full hour. I think that would be very difficult for most people. To do, I mean, there'd be periods there where you know you really got to focus for ten minutes, and then there's a pause, and maybe you do an exercise or two or something, and then you switch switch back. So I, I think having these kind of uh, breaks, especially for younger kids, is is important. And is it? I mean, the, I guess that you might even call it folk uh, the, the the folk biology here, but or, or an intuition at least that the you know the mind can hold seven things at once, and 
the more I talk to academics or, you know, five things at once, the more I talk to academics and researchers in this area, the more overtly simplistic that is. And it depends on what the chunks are and it depends on the type of person and it depends what else is going on. Is, is that fair to say that we can't really put a figure on that working memory capacity? <clears throat> yeah, it's probably a, a, a colleague of mine here at Missouri is actually one of the world's leading researchers on that so I, I kind of chat with him about it occasionally um his his uh view right now is that you know the attentional focus the number of things you can deal with at a time is probably about three. Oh wow so it's quite a lot lower than the, the seven that was quoted a while ago yeah yeah it, it, it is limited and now you can get, you can get the, the the seven comes from things like you know you give seven numbers to um uh, college students and they can repeat them back. So that's it. So it seems that, but they get seven because they can rehearse the numbers or they can have one, three and they chunk it as 13. So then it just becomes one item rather than two. So strategic stuff allows you to functionally increase working memory capacity. But the, uh, the, the very foundation of it is actually pretty limited. And so three is a is a task, I guess, because it, it requires. I mean, this is where cognitive. We may as well go into cognitive load theory here. I guess. Would it be fair to say Sweller has built on your work, or was it a retrospective <laughs> look at your work that helped him with cognitive load theory? How is is it something that you've talked to Sweller about? Um, do you work together on it? How is that relationship between what what you were doing and what he's doing? Yeah. So, uh, great question. I, I, I've uh, admired John's work for, for a long time. Um, I actually met, met him once at a conference that I co-organized with uh, a colleague of mine on evolution and development. But John uh, developed the cognitive load theory just doing good empirical work on students' learning. And um, from that, discovered that you know, you you need to take into consideration the uh, working memory attentional demands of learning in order to get good uh, outcomes. And then um, <clears throat> sometime later, I think maybe a little, little over 10 years ago or so, I, I wrote a monograph on um, educating the evolved mind. And the uh, editors of that volume, who I, I wrote the, the main thing, and they invited some people to write commentaries on it. And um, they invited John uh, as one of them. And I, I guess he, he kind of had the insight. It's like, okay, well, this explains why he's getting all of these effects. Once you kind of frame it in terms of primary and secondary, everything he is studying is secondary knowledge. And then I argue, as I said before, that that requires working memory, attentional focus, effortful control, and so forth to develop these competencies. Uh, the, you know, the primary secondary idea in all of his empirical work to just kind of flowed right together. It's like, oh, okay, N now this makes a lot of sense. Mm. The reason you need to think about how many items you're your student is working on at a time in terms of informational input is because that secondary knowledge is effortful and it's not natural and so this is why there's a difference between a child in preschool learning how to or a child learning how to walk and a child learning complex algebra is because he found a he found a he found an explanation in your work of of why he was why he found that finding i guess right right and he's he's gone on to sort of uh, advocate certain instructional uh, practices for teachers on the back of that work. Okay, if we're going to consider cognitive load, then um, then we should teach in a in a direct way, and that's not a capital DI. It's a sort of we need explicit instruction, i.e., telling them what what the information is and practicing that information and consolidating that information. Um, does that fit with with you as well? I mean, is that is that is that transfer of that theory to 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 instruction something you're supportive of and agree with? Yeah, yeah. For uh, for the uh, most part, because remember, you know, we can go back 150 years or so, and um, not everybody, at least in the U.S., went to school and was literate. Mm. Um, and so, you know, as 
kids with from wealthy backgrounds or whatever uh, went to school. But but now we have kind of universal education, so we have a, a really wide range of um, kids with different competencies, different backgrounds, and so forth. That when we want to educate all of them, the uh, explicit instruction is and very kind of laid out piece by piece instruction is very important for kids who are struggling. Um, kids who haven't had a very supportive, academically supportive family background. Um, yeah, there, there, there are studies on this, and, and they just do much better under those conditions. Now, there may be 10% of kids or so that are very uh, curious, uh, very very smart, good working memory, so forth, and and they can probably and they they're they're going to pick things up more quickly, and they probably don't need as much structure, but they're going to need some structure because there's no way they can inherently know um, what they need to know uh, for later on in life or what they need to know in order to do well the next grade or two grades forward. So yeah, I I agree with the direct instruction and the structuredness um, of this in the practice, um, the more struggling the kid, the more the structure as kids become more skilled or with more skilled kids, um, you can probably go with a little less structure, but still some. But there, there are certainly things with secondary areas that can be assisted in positive ways by primary knowledge. So once you get that past the basics of reading, you know, the word decoding and, and so forth, and you're pretty fluid, and now you're reading stories, you're getting to, um, you know, there's characters in there, there's a plot, one character's thinking or doing this, and the other character's thinking and doing that, and so forth. And now it becomes much more uh, similar to uh, theory of mind and kind of natural social scenarios. And so here, you don't have to teach kids that. They automatically do that when they're playing with their friends or dealing with their parents or whatever. But now the stories um, can kind of grab onto that same system and help the kids understand what's going on in the story. That's interesting. So we sort of when we were talking before about the two developing side by side primary and secondary knowledge actually there is a place for that primary knowledge in the school system at, at the right point if you like right yeah i think so um but the teachers don't have to to teach kids that i mean they're automatically going to do that to help them uh understand what's going on with the characters in the story now if you want them to write a coherent story with a plot and a beginning, a middle, and end, and so forth. You probably have to give them some instruction on how to do that. I don't think the kind of the default mode theory of mind stuff uh, would give them that structure. But if they're they're just reading story about a couple of kids, um, yeah, the, the the secondary stuff would would help. So in in that sense, I think what John's saying, what some other people are saying, is that. Yeah, we probably can um, look at interactions between primary, secondary systems. And, and, and I've argued this before, and in some cases, the secondary systems can probably be used to help, or the primary systems can be used to help the secondary learning. In other cases, as we talked about with folk physics and folk biology, sometimes it interferes with um, secondary learning. And you know, we don't really know enough about, uh, you know, the distinction between those and how they're interacting to fully know when and where that's going to happen. But I'm sure the, those interactions happen quite a bit. Do you think then that uh, teachers using this, they, you know, when we, I hear a lot now pitches into the magazine, people saying, I'm using cognitive load theory to do my planning, or I'm using uh, Geary's theories to, to inform what I'm, how I'm teaching. Do we need to be aware that this is a developing field? As you just said, there's, there's more we have to learn about the interaction between primary and secondary. There's, there's perhaps more we have to learn about 
the interaction between the executive function and the 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 right time periods for default mode versus attentional focus and the right ages where things can can start kicking in it, it's sort of like it's not a fully formed route if you like right uh right yeah i mean i i think the basic theoretical framework is is pretty well worked out but the the details about how that would directly translate into instruction and content a or b or c or d um yeah a, a lot more work ne needs to be done on that do you think that's a reason for teachers to not ignore it though but uh you'd, you'd still expect you'd still think it's useful for teachers to know about this and to have it inform their work but perhaps not dictate what they do yeah, I, I think the the most important point is to understand. Well, you know, there's a difference. Kids learn language really easily. You know, two year olds, you know, their vocabulary begins to explode. They're beginning to form uh, grammatical sentences and so forth. But uh, you know, three years later, they're struggling to read the word the. I mean, makes no sense, right? Yeah. But it makes perfect sense if you say, well, you know, they're 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 preloaded to learn language. It's, it's going to happen as long as they have normal experiences. The um, you know learning to read, however, is difficult for kids because it's it's evolutionarily novel. And I think really keeping that in mind uh, and keeping that distinction in mind is really critical uh, because not making that distinction led to some really bad educational decisions and then taking the sorts of things that uh, uh, John's talked about in terms of uh, working memory focus um, you know having things organized and so forth um, makes sense for the secondary areas so it's like okay it's not like we're just telling you do it this way because maybe in two years, some another, another educational fad is going to come through and you're going to do it a completely different way. Um, I don't think this distinction is going to change, um, meaning that, yeah, it's secondary. And especially for kids who have attentional problems or not very good working memory or so forth, um, it's really important to give them a lot of organization keep them focused and give them practice superb we I've, I've i i i think i'll have to promise you now that we will come back and talk to you in detail about maths on the podcast again if you if you come if you come on again but i think actually for today that's that's been an excellent interview and so thank you very much great thank you, thank you.